Amen. Tyler, Christina, Eric, Colin, Jacob, thank you guys for leading us this morning. Thank you guys for bringing us to worship our King. Uh, we're glad you guys are here. If you guys will turn uh, to the book of Hebrews this morning, we're going to be in this book all semester and actually all year long. So we're going to be this morning, Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, as you guys turn there, let me uh, just remind you guys, uh, if you all haven't had a chance to sign up for small groups, it is not too late. We kicked things off last week here actually at our Southwood campus, but uh, this upcoming Tuesday night, 6.30 to 8.30 will be our first night actually in groups, and so if you guys haven't had a chance to sign up or haven't thought about it yet, uh, it'd be a great chance just to jump in. Groups aren't formed yet such that you won't feel like an exciter or outsider or excluded, so feel free to jump in this week. It'd be a great chance to jump in. If you guys want to, there's small group forms that are blue on the aisles or in the back. You guys can sign up and simply drop those off in the table in the back, but uh, if you guys haven't thought about that yet, I encourage you guys to jump in. All right, we're going to be Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verses 4 to 14 this morning. If you guys want to follow along with me, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 to 14. The writer of Hebrews says this, speaking of Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 4, he says, Jesus, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Pray with me. Father God, we give you great thanks that your son is your selected king. That a day will come and he will return and he will establish a kingdom that will have no end nor will it have any rivals, nor will it have any of those that will rebel against it. And when he returns, all tongues will confess and every knee will bow to him who is worthy to be worshipped, to him who is worthy to reign. And Father, I pray this morning as we look and through this passage, Lord, I pray that you teach us. pray that you give us wisdom. pray that you would enlighten our minds, Lord. And I pray that as we look at this very topic of the kingship of Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that you would give it a sense of how it implies to our life and our necessary response to it. Father, I pray this morning more so than any, Lord, that you would give us uh, not just a bunch of cute stories and a bunch of cute nuggets of truth and wisdom from your word, Lord, but I pray that you would move us by the end of this morning into a place and into a response that's wholly different than any we've ever had before. I pray that you'd allow us to walk out of here changed people, able to apply your word in really practical ways. Uh, I pray that your spirit would guide us this morning, Lord. I pray that you'd use me however you see fit and that you'd allow my words to be yours and that you would use this time for your glory and for your namesake, Lord. We ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. When I turned 16, I got a car, and my first real job, other than mowing lawns, was as a cashier at an all-men's shoe store called Larry's Shoes in Dallas, Texas. I think Larry's has gone out of business since then, but it was my first real job. And so I, I showed up and had a car I could drive myself. Um, and, and as I showed up to that job, my first real job, there were a couple things I noticed. One was working at an all-men's shoe store is a whole lot better than an all-girls shoe store because... There's TVs on with sports all the time, all right? Uh, second of all, your customers don't walk in saying, I need everything in red in a size 8. Could you bring it out, right? Uh, men shop a little bit different than women. But really, for me, really what struck me in that experience and really the first obstacles I ever had were in that job, I had uh, salespeople and coworkers that were calling me two different things in two different names. And these names became really difficult for me to carry out the tasks that I was assigned and the responsibilities I had. At 16, I was incredibly insecure. And probably for me then, uh, and kind of ironic what the Lord's doing with my life, but for me then and for much of college, my greatest fear was public speaking. And so one of the jobs I had uh, as a high school uh, uh, at the end of my sophomore year was that I had to at times come on the public 
address system, the PA system, and I had to make announcements either of closing hours or of uh, sales that were going on or whether a customer or had called in and wanted to get a hold of a sales pe- salesperson, so I had to come on the PA system. And what I ended up doing over and over again was, uh, since I was so insecure, uh, especially of speaking in front of groups, I would be incredibly timid on the uh, public address system. And so I would come on like a mouse. I was incredibly high-pitched. I was incredibly timid vocally, and so you could barely hear me. Uh, and, and as I came on, and eventually the salespeople began to call me Michael Jackson, all right? Because my voice was somewhat imitating his, which has all kinds of problems, right? It's not a name that you want to be called, all right? God rest his soul, all right? Um, the other thing that began to happen, which was even more awkward and even worse, was uh, as salespeople would come up uh, to the middle of the store, to the registers where I would cash out their customers, the salespeople began to introduce me as a guy named Skillet, all right? Uh, and as if that wasn't a, worse enough, they began to explain to these, sales, or to these customers that my name was Skillet and that I was uh, the shoe store's first hire of a temporary program in which they were hiring juvenile prisons in a work release program, okay? And so there I was, uh, having just met these customers, about to take their address and their credit card information, and they think I'm a juvenile prison inmate named Skillet, all right? You can imagine the title that I'd received, the name I received, wasn't really conducive to the task I had to perform. And so when I asked for their home address, they became quite suspect and quite uncomfortable with me. And especially when I wanted their credit card information to store it in a system that I could have access to later, they were even more worried about it, all right? And so for me, ultimately, in that experience, I was given a, a title or a set of names that really were not conducive to the task I had. And as a result of that, I often wondered, what were these salespeople thinking? Because if they continued pressing this, the term, uh, the, the duration of time I would have in that position was going to be really short-lived because no one would allow me to cash them out, and I was going to be out of a job real quick. And so for me, as I kind of thought through that, I was thinking, uh, as we look at this passage this morning in Hebrews chapter 1, what we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 to 14, is that Jesus is going to be stacked up against the angels. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Hebrews chapter 1, 1 to 4. We noticed that the writer begins to bring up the, the topic of angels. And what he's going to do here in this passage is compare angels to Jesus Christ. And ultimately, as he compares these two, what we're going to notice is that Jesus is going to walk away with a better title than the angels. He's going to walk away with a better set of tasks than the angels. And he's also going to walk away with a longer term in his office than the angels. Task, title, terms. That's what we're going to see as we look through this passage but in many regards, I think this passage is a bit difficult. One, if you guys are looking through, depending on your translation, depending on uh, what your edition does, if you ever find uh, quotes that are in all caps, it's a, it's a quote from the Old Testament. So as you guys kind of looking through, depending on your translation, what you may realize is that this entire passage is basically a litany of Old Testament quotes stacked one right after another. So this passage kind of presents us a, a couple difficulties. One is there's a whole bunch of Old Testament passages being quoted that we really don't know their original usage, and so we're going to have to kind of walk backwards a little bit to flesh that out. But the second thing is, uh, you and I really don't get the need to compare Jesus to angels, right? Uh, For you and I in our day and time, when you think of an angel, I'd love to know, what do you think of? What do you picture in your head? Uh, At least for me, when I think of an angel, as I think about what our culture has put forward, the pictures I see of angels, they're often kind of weird and freaky, right? A lot of angels are these little, in a sense, they have the body of a four-month-old baby, with fat rings, right? They may even have a diaper, depending on the picture. And then they have weird wings coming out the back, right? Uh, and then what's even weirder to me is that they often have the faces of a 40-year-old, right? <laughs> they have the four-month-old body and a 40-year-old face. They're just, in their picture, really, really weird. In many regards, what you and I don't get is, we not, not only do we not know how to look at them or what they look like, but we have no idea of what they do. As we kind of look through the book of Hebrews this, this year, what we're going to notice is that These people, by and large, had a gigantic knowledge and familiarity with the Old Testament. 
So as the writer here is going to quote from the Old Testament about ten different times and ten different passages, these are passages and, and, and stories that they all would have grasped the immediate context to and would have understood exactly what the writer of Hebrews was trying to say to them about Jesus Christ. And for them, as they looked back in the Old Testament, as they thought about the angels, how in the world did they view angels? In many regards, as you look back at the Old Testament, angels are much more like a Russell Crowe character in Gladiator than they are the Leonardo DiCaprio character we have in Titanic, right? When he's a little boy, he's about eight years old, and he has not one muscle on his body, you know? Uh, Angels in the Old Testament are far more fierce, far more warrior-like than what you and I typically get depicted. Often, the Jews often also thought that angels were involved in bringing the law to the people of Israel, and so they were not just warriors, but they were those that brought the word of God to his people. Uh, we're also going to see a little bit later this morning that angels were also involved in helping men and women worship. They were involved in the liturgy of a worship service in, in the throne of heaven. In the very worship room that was happening, angels were involved in worship. And so you get all these pictures in the Old Testament. But for you and I, we don't really get the need to compare angels to Jesus. For, for an Old Testament Jew, they thought not just that angels were warriors, they had great power, had great even authority, and maybe one day would rule the coming kingdom. And so for you and I, we don't really have that view of angels. In fact, he's gonna, the writer of Hebrews is going to correct that view this morning for us and figure out and help us see how Jesus sits up against the angels in terms of Jesus' authority. And so even though you and I don't get angels in many regards this morning, I think you and I have to deal with the question of how does Jesus' authority impact our lives? If he is the king to come that God has selected, then how does his reign and how does his coming kingdom impact my life right now? How does his authority impact my dating life? How does his authority even impact my academic life? How does his authority impact every arena of my life, even though he is not currently reigning in the way that he will be reigning in the future? How do I identify his kingdom and how do I help his kingdom advance? That's kind of where we're going to go this morning. But kind of as we start out, simply put, look with me in verse 4. What we're going to see is Jesus gets a title. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus, having become as much better than the angels, he's inherited a more excellent name than they. Jesus is going to get a name that's going to set him apart from everybody else. Uh, A lot of you guys may not realize this, but I have a legal name that sets me apart from everybody else. Uh, My legal name, as my parents named me on the birth certificate and as I have on my social security card, is this. Huey Todd Corey III, all right? Uh, it sounds like royalty. It's not, all right? Uh, Huey, as it comes out, the first day of elementary school always led to scorn and shame, all right? Kids would just start laughing. And I usually, at all costs, tried to hide Huey whenever I can. I, I inherited a name, but it wasn't a name that, in a sense, set me above everybody else. And in many regards, it put me at the exposure and at the ridicule of everybody else. Uh, one of the worst names, and, and if you guys sure says. are dating, maybe you guys have friends, your roommates who are dating seriously, and You've often wondered, why is it that their girlfriend is always at her house? It's like we have a fifth roommate. Uh, and maybe what really drives you nuts even more is the pet names they have for each other. You know, um, I don't know if any of you guys have names for each other that like rhyme, you know, like Sweetie Bedidi. You know, I don't know uh, what kinds of pet names you guys have heard and what just drives you crazy. Uh, Marcy and I had this uh, couple that were married friends of ours in Dallas when, we, when I was in seminary. And the name they had for each other was Bunny. They called each other Bunny. All right. Now... Uh, you can imagine in its context, you know, you're at a romantic dinner, candlelight, you're looking across, and you say, Bunny, I love you. But what really got me, as gross and disgusting as that was, what got me even more was this. They would use that name even when they were angry at each other. So, you know, we're on a, on, in the car with them, and they're arguing about where to turn, and so it's, you know, from one moment, it's Bunny, I love you, to the next moment, Bunny, turn here, all right? You know, sometimes you and I inherit names that we have no control over, all right? 
And those inherited names can have a huge impact, not only on our, it can denote intimacy with someone, it can also denote importance with someone. Jesus is going to get a name that denotes intimacy with the one who names him, and it denotes importance with the one who names him. Look with me at verse 5, look at the name he gets. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. The name that Jesus gets is son. The title that the Father gives to Jesus Christ is Son. We talked about this a bit, a little bit two weeks ago when we said that Jesus, as Son, shares the representation, shares the same nature with His Father. And so if if a Jehovah's Witness may show up on your door, they may come knocking, you look through the peephole, you invite them in, and a Jehovah's Witness may tell you that Jesus Christ, there was a time that He did not exist. He is the Son of God. He was born, He was begotten, He was even the firstborn of the Father. And the idea being the implication of that as they interpret that is that it means that there was a time that Jesus did not exist. But again, that's a misunderstanding of the term because even in the beginning of this book, if you guys remember from a couple weeks ago, what did the writer say about Jesus Christ? That he, as son, shares the same nature with the Father. Look at verse 3, looking back. Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory and he is the exact representation of his nature. It's not just that he was created because he wasn't created. He's existed for all time. But it's particularly that he is in the same nature with the Father. So if you want to know the Father, if you want to know God, you just look at Jesus Christ because he's the best picture, the best image of anything you could find. The writer of Hebrews here in verses 4 to on are going to kind of transition from that idea of image and likeness. And he's going to transition to a new idea of the significance of what it means that Jesus is Son. What he's going to do in verse 5 is he's going to quote from a couple places in the Old Testament, and they would have understood that, that title son was not just about likeness and representation. It was about something completely different. I want you guys to keep your, your hand here in the book of Hebrews. I want you guys to flip back to Psalm chapter 2. I want to give you guys a little bit of a glimpse of, of the passage that the writer of Hebrews is quoting from. This is going to be the, really the one place that we really do this this morning. Uh, if you guys flip Psalm chapter 2. Uh, in Hebrews chapter uh, 1, verse 5, verse 5 is going to quote back from chapter 2, and he's going to quote particularly from chapter 2, verse 7. But the six verses that precede really give you the context so that you understand what it means for Jesus to receive the title of Son. Look with me, Psalm chapter 2. The psalmist writes, verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. These foreign kings that, that mount a plan to, to assail a and to attack God, God just laughs at them. That they would make plans that would be a rebellion to Him. And He speaks to them in His anger in verse 5, and He says, uh, and He terrifies them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Verse 7, the one He quotes, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. And he said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The fact that, as he quotes from Psalm 2, the fact that Jesus Christ is titled the Son, is a title that expressly denoted that God, that Jesus Christ was God's sovereign choice to be the king to come. The fact that he is son denotes that he is the king who is going to come one day. Back to Hebrews chapter 1, uh, he, does, he quotes from Psalm 2, but he also quotes from 2 Samuel 7. We're not going to look there, but in 2 Samuel 7, God is going to come to David and he's going to give him a promise that will be enduring for all of eternity. And that promise is that one from the line of David will come who will reign over the house of God and establish the kingdom of God and his kingdom will have no end. 
So as you look at your Old Testament, the term son of God and the term son of David were terms that expressly denoted God's sovereign selection of a ruler to come. In fact, that's why in Luke chapter 1, the angel says this to Mary. Luke chapter 1, the angel said to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Notice, as you go into the New Testament, and we see this term, Son of God, Son of David, that's always a term denoting God's sovereign choice, his anointing of one who's going to come and rule over all of the world. A kingdom is coming one day in which Jesus Christ will reign from Jerusalem, and his reign will be over all nations. He will break them like a rod of iron, says Psalm 2. And a day is going to come when all will have to do homage to the king, Psalm 2, later on in that psalm. One of my favorite verses. Do homage to the king unless you want to perish in his wake. The invitation here, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that as Jesus is stacked against the angels, he is the son. He is in the exact representation by nature with the father, but he's also the father's choice and his selected ruler to come. In many regards, it's a little bit like, and some of you guys may realize this, today's a big day for me. The Dallas Cowboys kick off their season. So I thought I'd illustrate uh, from Jerry Jones. All right. Thank you, Jake. I appreciate that. All right. Then this, the hisses come later. All right. Uh, this is Jerry Jones and his son, Stephen Jones. Uh, Stephen is one of Jerry's many sons. He's got, I think, at least two sons. All right. Um, and the, Jerry uh, has put Stephen Jones as his right-hand man in the Dallas Cowboys organization. All right. Not only does Stephen represent a likeness to Jerry as his physical son, but Stephen also, as his right-hand man, is in a position in a day to come, if Jerry ever does this, will one day hand over the Dallas Cowboys to his son. Stephen is the son who is in the likeness of his father, but he's also the son that's been in a unique way chosen amongst the other sons that will be the one who will one day rule the Dallas Cowboys. One day when Jerry steps aside or moves to insanity, and he may already be there, uh, in that day, uh, Stephen Jones or Jerry will hand over his kingdom, the Dallas Cowboys, to his son Stephen, all right? Now, I'm not trying to say that Jerry Jones is God. Please don't take it that direction, all right? Uh, but what I want you guys to see is that, in a sense, Stephen Jones is Jesus Christ and that he's the one who's in the likeness to the Father, all right? I don't want to say that either. I think you guys get what I'm trying to say, all right? The Son means that there's a likeness and that there's a one, a choice to come, who will reign eventually, all right? Let's move on, shall we? All right. You guys all think I'm heretical, okay. I'm a little too into the Dallas Cowboys. I get it, all right. Uh, the rest of the passage, as we kind of go on, is going to show us not just Jesus' title, but Jesus' task. What does God the Father task Jesus, the Son, to do? Uh, verses 6 to 9, just look with me, verse 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Notice the first task that Jesus Christ as Son has is that he will receive all worship. Uh, in the commentaries and historical studies that tell us that uh, the, the people that were in the audience of this book may have been possibly worshiping angels, one of the writers even say, hey, don't, don't worship the angels. Worship him who they are worshiping. According to Isaiah 6, we get angels in the very presence of God as worship is occurring. It's the angels who are sending holies volleying back and forth. And it's, it's the angels that when Isaiah enters into that picture in Isaiah 6 as he's undone, it's the angels that come and put a coal to his uh, mouth so that he can be purified, that he can remain in the room to worship. So we see that the angels are not the ones that we're to worship, but they're directing worship to God himself. Verse 7, we find the kind of their role. Verse 7, and of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? Aside from the wind and the fire analogy, that's kind of weird. What I want you guys to notice in verse 7 is, what are the angels doing? One, uh, they're not receiving worship. What they are doing, though, is ministering. But what are they doing in particular? 
Look in verse 14. Kind of flash forward a bit. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Notice, what are angels doing? Angels are being dispatched as servants and in their role, what they're doing is they're drawing men and women to salvation. And in particular, what are they doing? If you look in the Old Testament, you look at chapter 1, verse 14, I think what they're doing is they're drawing men and women into worship. They're not the receivers of worship. They're the ones that are drawing you and I towards and to worship of the one who is worthy to be worshipped. In many regards, I think you and I often can miss and, and end up worshiping the middleman, all right? Uh, if you, you guys have ordered your iPhone, your iPad, your Mac, and you waited on UPS to deliver it, what happens when that UPS van finally shows up? You guys have been waiting, looking out the window. That guy shows up, walks to your door, you knock. You've already opened it before he's knocked, and you sometimes, depending on your excitement, may embrace, hug, and maybe even kiss him, right? And you may praise him, but he's just the messenger. He's just brought the gift, right, even though you're that excited. And for some of us, what we miss is that we end up worshiping the middleman or we worship the gifts of God and we miss the giver of the gift. And so the writer of Hebrews says, hey, don't worship the middleman. <laughs> Even though Brown can deliver your greatest hopes and dreams, don't worship the middleman. Don't worship the messenger. Don't worship the one who's been dispatched to serve you. Worship him who's been the dispatcher of the servant. So what you get a picture is here that the angels were ministering to God, but also ministering to you and I and drawing you and I to worship of the one who has been called the worthiest of all to worship. But it's not just that. We're going to find as him who is to receive all worship, he's also going to rule all people. Now look with me, verse 8 and 9. These are the task of him who's been titled the Son. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Notice, what is uh, Jesus' role? What is he doing? He's going to reign over all people. In fact, his reign, his kingdom, is one that is characterized by righteousness and by gladness. You and I see all kinds of authority and all kinds of kingdoms today. But the nature of the kingdom that Jesus Christ is bringing and will one day establish is one that is of such a different kind and manner than any other one that you and I see today. I don't care how amazing you think a democracy is or how frustrated as you think this democracy is. But ultimately, it's just a shadow. It's just but a taste because there is a kingdom that's coming that's going to be far greater and far more perfect because him who is ruling it is holy, righteous, and is the God-man. A day is coming in which God the Father will hand over all of creation to his Son and he will rule over all. That's the task that this guy has been given and his term in office is going to be quite long. Look with me, verse 10, and we see the term of Jesus. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Notice, Jesus' reign began a long time ago. Jesus is not a created being, but he was reigning from the very beginning. And according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, we find that he was even present at creation. The Father was involved with the Son in bringing about the creation of all things, and he will one day be heir of all things. Not only did his reign begin a long time ago, but it will extend for a long time. Verse 11, And though all that you've created will perish, but you remain. And though all the things that you've created will become old like a garment and like a mantle, you will roll them up and like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same and your years will not come to an end. The reign of Jesus began a long time ago and the reign of Jesus will extend into eternity. But verse 13 is really the interesting one. It's where I want to land you guys. Even though the reign of Jesus began a long time ago and even though the reign of Jesus is going to extend into all of eternity, right now there's something different going on. Verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? We saw in chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus has sat at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's sitting temporarily. He's sitting because his redemptive work is done. 
Jesus Christ has already died on a cross. He's already resurrected from death. And he's already provided all you and I need to have our sins cleansed, washed, and forgiven. He's already done all that he needs to do so that you and I can be brought back into a relationship with him. And he's already done all that he needs to do so that the power of sin is broken in our life and that we can be restored, recreated, and remade even in the present. And yet he's not done. A day is going to come that he's going to rise from that spot and he's going to return to the earth and he's going to set up a kingdom. And that kingdom, though, has not yet come because he says in verse 13, sit here until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. According to Hebrews 2, we know that this day and age, this time, these days are evil because him who is reigning in a sense over these days is Satan. He is the prince of the power of the air who's reigning over these days. That which you see right now, the kingdom of God, is completely different than what you will see in a day to come. In fact, the greatest challenge that you and I have, I would argue, is sometimes knowing how to identify the kingdom of God. How do I identify the movement of God in politics? Can I? Do I? In this country? In a country that's titled God's country? Is it really a Christian nation? How do I determine the movement of God over amongst the nations in the midst of the missions world? How do I identify the kingdom of God and where God is moving? And if I can't identify it, how in the world do I help it advance if I don't even know how to identify it? In fact, according to history, we find that the great Napoleon also had a, a great issue with this. At the height of his reign, he thought he was going to conquer the entire world. And someone asked him at the height of his uh, pride, they asked him, uh, how do you know whose side God is on in a battle? Uh, Napoleon's response was, God is on the side who has the greatest and the heaviest artillery. Uh, uh, Napoleon didn't exactly know how to identify the kingdom of God. He didn't know how to trace it. He didn't know where it was. He didn't know what made and moved the hand of God. In fact, it's going to be later on when he's exiled to an island that he'll say this. Man proposes, but God disposes. I marvel that whereas the ambitious dreams of myself, Caesar Alexander, should vanish into thin air, a Judean peasant, Jesus, should be able to stretch his hand over the destinies of men and nations. Napoleon, towards the end, finally recognized that the hand and the majesty and the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ is one day going to finally be stretched and is going to move and be established. And that kingdom will not have a counterfeit and it will not have an uh, opponent. It will crush all other rule against it. And yet Napoleon, even in that day and time, and what you and I can see right now of the kingdom of God that's at times hard to trace, even in that time, in the preview that you and I get now, could see enough to know that Jesus Christ one day his hands would reach over all nations and over all men's destinies. And for you and I, it's difficult to establish and to identify the kingdom of God. And it's even harder to know how to advance the kingdom of God. And if the angels were worshiping God and if the angels were drawing men and women into worship, then you and I also have the same task as the servants of God. The storyline throughout your Bible from Genesis to Revelation is that God is trying to establish his glory. And the storyline that, that unfolds is that man always ends up trying to usurp the glory of God and they end up trying to do something for themselves. And yet what God wanted to do from the beginning in the garden back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 was this. He wanted to establish his glory by establishing a kingdom on earth through human representation. If you want to know the storyline that loops and holds all of Genesis to Revelation together, it's this. God is glorifying himself by establishing his kingdom on earth through human representation. The reality is those that were meant to, and to represent him, though, fell into sin. And so God was moving in the course of human history to redeem man so that man could again represent him and rule on his behalf. And finally, one will come in the likeness of man, but also in the likeness of God, who will one day reign and establish that kingdom that is to come that will be final and eternal. Jesus Christ will return one day. And the question is, as, he, as we await his return, what do we do? 
As you and I stand in between the period in which he has declared that he's returning and he's not yet returned in a day and time in which we cannot always easily see the kingdom of God, what do you and I do? How do we play into and how do we help this kingdom that seems invisible at times? It's really hard to identify. How do we help this kingdom move and how do we help it advance? I want to give you guys kind of two ideas, really. Ultimately, I think we help it advance in two different ways. We help this kingdom of God that's invisible, that's hidden, that's moving slowly and at times quietly. We help it advance through evangelism and we help it advance in worship. And ultimately, there's a, there's a thread that links those two together. Ultimately, what you and I are called to do is establish and proclaim the very excellencies and the reputation and the glory of God. That's what you, you and I have been called to do. To represent God, to rule on God's behalf and proclaim and lift high His exalted glory, His exalted name. And you and I do that in two different ways. We do that at one level amongst those who do not know him. That's what we call evangelism. Proclaiming to those who do not know God that he is worthy of their worship. He's worthy of all that they've been created for. The other area we do that is in worship together as the body of Christ in what we would just call worship. (laughs) As we together come and we proclaim the excellencies, the beauty of God. And what I want to do this morning is challenge you guys in two specific ways along those fronts. I want to challenge you guys this semester to grow in those two areas. In particular, this morning, I want to challenge you that you would grow in the area of evangelism and that you would grow in the area of worship. Uh, In many regards, as a college pastor, uh, Marcy and I have realized kind of in our marriage and in our ministry that our role in y'all's lives is not helping y'all getting started dating, all right? Uh, In terms of hookups and matchups, we are batting zero, all right? Uh, We aren't good in the matchup business, all right? So we'd let you guys kind of figure it out. But what we realize is we're really good at Closing the deal, all right? We'll get you to the finish line, all right? And, and so uh, what you'll notice from me at times is uh, I, I may, uh, and, and the people who are laughing know, know this because they know me now, uh, I will put my nose in your business, all right? I'll ask you all kinds of questions. I want to know what's going on dating-wise because I like to be in the loop, all right? And, and here's what I found being in the loop at times as, as y'all's relationships begin and then as they move on. Uh, at times as relationships begin, what I love to hear is as I ask a guy maybe, well, hey, why are you really into this girl? I always love to hear, at some level, the response is a bit superficial, even as Christians. I think she's fun, she's pretty, we have a good time, she makes me laugh, you know? Not bad, not a, not a bad reason to ask her out, all right? But if it's six months later, and you're still with the girl, and you've said uh, your reasons for being with her are the exact same as when you first started dating her, or in particular, your ability to praise her has not developed and deepened, then there's something wrong with that relationship, Right? If, if you're still amazed or, or caught up in that which is superficial and hasn't yet deepened to certain character qualities and you haven't really got to know her deeper and you're still praising her on really superficial things and your ability to praise her has not grown, deepened, and expanded and there's something wrong with that relationship. And whether you're praising her or you're praising others about her, if you've not deepened and matured in your ability to praise her, then there's something wrong with that relationship and there's something wrong with your heart for her, Right? I think in many regards, it's the exact same way in worship and our praise of God. For some of us, you guys have been walking with the Lord for a really long time. Maybe some of you guys haven't yet even begun a relationship with Jesus Christ and haven't yet even trusted his death, burial, and resurrection to remove the penalty of your sins and to bring you into a relationship with him. I don't know where you are this morning. And if you're just beginning and and all you know of God is that he's good and that he's got a plan for you, awesome. But if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, what I want to begin to challenge you guys, or especially if you're going to be here this semester, is I want to challenge and begin to push you guys to worship and to be able to praise Him deeper and deeper and deeper. And we do that in two particular ways. One is in evangelism. I'll be honest with you guys, I realized even just about a week ago, we had an international couple over to our house. 
Marcy and I got to share the gospel with them. And what I realized as I was sharing the gospel with them was that I had it on autopilot. <laughs> I was sharing the gospel the exact same way I always share the gospel. I was listening to the conversation, but I was kind of going through the same rehearsed bits and points one after another. I hadn't been growing in my ability to express new facets of the gospel, new facets of what Christ has done on our behalf. And in many regards, for some of you guys, as you guys come and worship, some of y'all, in the midst of maybe singing songs that you know, or in the midst of of, of even your own prayers, you're you're beginning to realize that the things you say to the Lord and the ways that you praise the Lord maybe are beginning to look the exact same over and over and over again. And what I want to do this morning is I'm going to push you guys and challenge you guys in these two areas to grow and to stretch yourself. In particular, in terms of evangelism, if, if, if you're here this morning and you have a heart for those who don't know Jesus Christ and you want to be able to praise Him, maybe some of y'all aren't really sure of what you say. Maybe you're not really sure of the content that you need to explain to someone that is the gospel. A great thing this upcoming Tuesday night, if you're in, the, in our study of Colossians, is that we're going to talk all this Tuesday night about what the gospel is. What is the content someone needs to understand and to know? And if you're not totally sure of that, it would be a great spot to land, a great spot for you to find out. Also, our central studies that's also here on Tuesday night is a great spot for you to find the basic truths of the Christian faith. Not a bunch of just cold doctrine, but a bunch of stuff that's the reality of who God is and what He's doing in our lives. And ultimately, I think maybe for some of you guys, it's not a content thing. Maybe some of you guys aren't totally sure of how in the world you share the gospel. Maybe for you guys, it's a courage thing. Maybe for you guys, some of it's a a fear thing. I don't don't know where you guys are or or whether you guys are the kind of people that are inevitably just proclaiming the, the worthiness of God. And if you're not, if you're not inevitably sharing that, then there's something that's wrong because your verbal proclamation, even to others, is an overflow of your own heart and of your own passion. But for you guys as well, I want to put you guys not just in the area of evangelism, but where I really want to end this morning is in the area of worship. I want to put you guys in some ways that may seem different and new for you. I want to see you guys as you walk this semester begin to change and to grow and develop in the means and in the way that you worship. In particular, I want you guys to begin to think that worship is not about verbal proclamation. Your worship, we often will say, is the epitome of all that you are. So it's how you use your time. It's how you use your money. But I want to even take you guys to the very context that you're used to here on a Sunday morning, even as you sing and you worship him who is worthy of your worship. I want to begin to push you guys and begin to help you guys think about how do you, can you grow in that experience. Um, Tyler and I had a conversation about this time last year, and our heart for you guys was to begin to move and help you guys grow in your capacity and in your response to the Lord, even in this time. And not just in this time, but even in your own time at home. And I found for myself, even as we tried some things with you guys last semester and last year, what I found for myself was for the first time in my life last year, I was growing in my own worship experience in a way I had never grown in my life. And in particular, one of the things I want you guys to hear and and see is is worship is not just about your mouth opening and and proclaiming truths verbally. But worship is the entirety of who you are. And so it has as much to do with your emotions and as much to do with your physical body. I'm a guy. I'm an only child. I'm a private dude, all right? Uh, This may be a little too much information, but when I was a kid, I used to change in a closet because I was just that private, all right? And, And so for me, even in worship, now I may have totally just distracted you guys, but even in worship... What I found for myself in that experience is a, is a concern with other people around me and a concern with what other people may think. What I want to do for you guys this morning is try to blow that out of the water. And I want to begin to push you guys in, in two areas, and one is the emotional and one is the uh, physical. 
All right, let me, let me clearly also say, and for those of you all who have been here before, you know we are not a charismatic church. Uh, crazy things aren't happening in our worship service, all right? Uh, we believe wholeheartedly that the centerpiece and that which is the clearest revelation of God, that which he's clearly drawn us into, is an understanding of his word. And as we open his word, and it's our centerpiece will be enlightened by truth. And that truth moves our emotions, and it moves us to praise him. And in particular, as our emotions move, we respond even physically, let me kind of give you guys two quick uh, ideas. Your body reflects your heart. What you do with your body in worship reflects your heart. It is the, in a sense, window of what's happening internally. And not only does your body at times reflect your heart, sometimes your body directs your heart. I'm an engineering dude, all right? I am a guy. I'm not uh, way emotional. I'm pretty, pretty even, all right? And yet, for me, one of the things I began to do last year for the first time in my life was just try something different physically, all right? Um, now, I, I used to be a guy that had my hands like this. I used to be a guy that had my hands in my pockets. Uh, I used to just sit or stand, um, sing not loud, not move, all right? Now, what I want you guys to hear is there's not a physical response that's more spiritual than another. But what I want you guys to begin to think about in trying is varying your own physical response to the Lord. If you guys took a girl out and did the exact same thing with her over and over again and didn't vary the things you said, didn't vary the way that you treated her, it would become stale. I think for some of y'all, worship might be becoming that way. And one of the things we're going to give you guys an opportunity to do even this morning is begin to respond physically in a different way. Uh, this may be really uncomfortable for you guys. Come on up. Uh, I'm going to ask you guys, uh, Tyler and them are going to uh, lead us in one last closing song. And, and ultimately, I want you guys to remember what this is all about is a reflection on the truth of God of who he is. And as we reflect on that truth, our heart stirs. And what I want to challenge you guys to do this morning, and this may feel weird for you guys, is begin to respond or try something different physically. If you're a dude that just hands up and you go crazy, I want to encourage you, sit down for time. Be reflective. If you're a person that sits down um, or, or, or uh, always has your hands in your pocket or folded, um, if you want to stay there, that's great. Uh, but if you'd be willing, I'd love to challenge you and just to try it for once. People's eyes are going to be closed. The lights are going to be down. I want you just to try something physically that's different. You're going to find it's going to be really uncomfortable, all right? It's going to be really different. You're going to think about who's around you. But what I want you to begin to try is just to vary your response in worship. Because I want you guys this semester to become the kinds of people that are moving and growing in your response and in your worship to God. And so for some of you guys, that may mean what we do here on Sunday morning. But for some of you all, it may mean even just at home. Uh, Maybe you're just a person who studies all the time. I'd love to encourage you as you worship the Lord, journal. Uh, Begin to write out what you're thinking and varying kind of your opportunity and your experience in a relationship with the Lord. And for some of you guys, this may be kind of weird, this may be kind of brand new, and, and yet I think it's going to be a great opportunity for you guys. And one of the other things we're going to be doing this semester as we kind of wrap up and close morning after morning is we're going to have uh, two people here kind of at the front. And uh, if you want to just come up, if you want to have someone to pray with, if you want to have someone to talk with, these two people will be up here for you guys. Uh, this morning is going to be Greta and Jordan. I'm going to, of course, I'll always be up here. Uh, but even as we bring the lights down, as we have a chance to worship this morning, we want to just challenge you guys and begin to try to respond in a new way. And I think what you're going to find is not that it's a legalistic kind of thing, but that it will provide you an opportunity to begin to change, develop, grow in your own response to the Lord. And then I'm going to come up and close this in prayer. Father God, we give you great thanks. Uh, You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are the creator of all things. And all things will be brought back into your presence and back into subjection to you. And so, Father, I pray as we await on your return, Lord, our prayer, our lives would be filled with a pursuit to know you. 
a pursuit to make you known. And I pray that in that pursuit, as we proclaim your worthiness, that you would move all that we are, that our lives, our time, our bodies, our emotions, our minds. Uh, You've made us to worship and you've brought into that experience of fulfillment unlike any other. And so we go to a football game and we can scream to our lungs and to our voices are gone. We can raise our hands, we can cheer. And Lord, I pray this morning, then this semester, I pray that you'd begin to stretch us in our means and our capacity to worship. Pray that you would draw us to know you more, that we could proclaim your glories even deeper and wider. Pray that you would draw us even physically, Lord, that you would remove some barriers, not that there's any right way to worship, not that there's any more spiritual physical posture than another, Lord, but I pray that you would involve and that you would move our bodies. And then the spots and in the ways that were held back by some fear or some conception, Lord, I pray that you remove that. And I pray, Lord, in the midst of our times here on Sunday mornings, in the midst of a life in which we walk with you, Lord, I pray that you would deepen our passion for you, our ability and our capacity to proclaim your character and your activity in this world. And I pray that you would create within us a deeper and deeper longing uh, for your return. Uh, when all things will be brought back into subjection of him for whom they've been created, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that as we live our lives, that we would be uh, a worship service in our very lives to you. And that as people look on, they'd see a, a trailer and a taste and a foretaste of the kingdom that's coming as you restore and as you renew our lives and remake us, Lord. Pray that we would live lives worthy uh, of that which you've created us to be. And Father, I pray this semester for us, even as a body, Lord, I pray that you would continue to grow us and to stretch us and to move us into places that are uncomfortable, into places that have cost, because it's in that that we show how worthy you are and how precious you are, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. You guys, thanks for coming here this morning, and we'll see you guys next week.